Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, activist, trainer, and executive director of The Rules, Alnur Lada. I don't think that all we can do is create alternative currencies and cooperatives and think that we're going to be okay. Simultaneously, we have to remove the noose of capitalism from the neck of 99% of humanity. And we have to support the world's social movements that are, are fighting against their nation states and corporations. Alnur will help us understand the interplay between political organizing, systems thinking, storytelling, technology, and the decentralization of power. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. This is Team Human. Mark Zuckerberg came out with a manifesto this week explaining how Facebook is going to build a global community characterized by safety and civic engagement. Of course, that's the stuff that happens locally, not on giant international, global social networks. It's the real people connecting. That's what Team Human is all about. We're looking in the eyes of other people, figuring out what actually we need to do. How are we going to relate to one another? It's not a social media problem. What he's really responding to is the increasing awareness that Facebook and Google, for that matter, were subverted by Russian oligarchs and billionaires in the United Kingdom and America who paid programmers to hack the algorithms that deliver the search results on Google and that concoct the algorithmic news feeds on Facebook that he 
Zuckerberg and Google were hacked, essentially. And they were hacked, not just that they were opened up like like Yahoo and like foreign hackers finding their uh, uh, users' email addresses. It was that their their business model and their algorithms were hacked. And this is why they're acting like there's nothing they can do about it. I mean, most simply, and you can read the articles in Politico or The Guardian or even uh, The Times has some of them. Most simply what happened is uh, both Google and Facebook use algorithms to determine what's going to go in our news feeds or what kinds of search results that we're going to get. If I search for something in my Google window, I'll get different results than you're going to get because Google knows different things about me. Now, the whole idea is that Google is customizing itself to make itself more useful to me or useful to you because it knows what we want. But what's really going on is that Google and Facebook's business models are based on us clicking on lots of things. The more things we click on, then the more likely we'll click on a sponsored post, which will lead Google or Facebook to get money directly from our click. But the more we click in general, the more data points they get about us and the more data they have to sell to big market research companies. Now, some of those big market research companies were hired by the Trump campaign or the Brexit campaign or just billionaires or Russian oligarchs looking to influence the elections. And those data points, those two or 3,000 data points they have on all three or 400 million Americans who are on Facebook or Google, those data points can be used to craft messaging that influences us. So if all of the news stories in our feed say that Hillary Clinton is sick and old or that Bernie Sanders was cheated or that Obama is wiretapping Trump, eventually we get influenced by those stories. We get influenced by that media. And the only kinds of stories that they'll put in our news feeds, the only kinds of links that they'll give us on a Google search are ones that seem plausible to us, the kinds of things that we will actually click on. But what happened was by creating these very uh, solipsistic, uh, tunnel-like, fake realities for us, for all of us, what they ended up doing, as we all well know now, was disconnecting America from fact-based reality. They ended up undermining news to the point where, which is great, thousands of people are buying New York Times subscriptions and Guardian subscriptions and LA Times subscriptions. People want real news because they understand that this social media stuff and our Google searches aren't really bringing us truth. But in spite of the fact that people are leaving Facebook and not using Google in droves as a result of all this, the, the leaders of these companies are acting as if there's really nothing they can do. That isn't this a really big problem? There are these fake news stories coming in and people are, are they're really smart and they're figuring out how to infect our news feeds by undermining the algorithms and affect our, our search results by 
doing really advanced stuff that we can't figure out. Well, that's an insult to the programmers at Google and at Facebook, many of whom I've met. These are smart people, at least as smart as you or I. And you or I know very well that a fake news story with or, or a fake uh, Google search result with fake referrals has a different fingerprint than a real one. A fake news story is going to spread at a different rate and in different ways and and augmented and pushed by different forces, amplified by different servers than real news stories. It would be very easy to figure out I could probably do this if I just had one one notch more programming ability, but I guess I could do it myself with, with the rest of Team Human here. It would be very easy to identify what is the fingerprint of a fake news story versus the fingerprint of a real one. And that would be all you'd need to keep these things out of our feeds or out of our search results. The problem is that once a company like Facebook or Google became able to or willing to uncover the fake activity going on on its websites, the fake stories, the fake referrals, well, where does that stop? That's really no different than all of the fake clicks on stories and ads. The robots clicking on ads and stories which fuel at least one quarter and probably more than half of the clicks happening on these services to date. If Facebook were to reveal that half of the clicks going onto a news story or uh, into one of its paid sponsors are just robots clicking on things, that's not good for the company. Then all of a sudden, the whole house of cards comes down because it's not real people looking at a lot of these ads anyway. It's just bots. So once they start unraveling the real from the fake, the underlying business plan breaks down. It gets exposed as a sham. So in order to keep that business plan alive, Facebook and Google remain vulnerable to all of these companies, all of these uh, political agitators and fake news uh, dispensaries that can exploit those algorithms to spread misinformation. You know, and even if they didn't go that far, even if by uncovering fake news and how that spreads, even if it didn't reveal the fake clicks, uh, eliminating fake news stories from our feeds and search results would lighten traffic. It would slow down the total number of clicks. The thing about fake news stories, the reason why they do so well is people click on them. They're exciting. They're sensationalist. They are crafted to stimulate an impulsive response from us. But if there's less impulsive activity, there's less clicking going on, and that's bad for the Facebook business model. That's bad for the Google business model. Moreover, the less impulsively we're acting, the more room there is for critical thinking. The, the more we'll do intelligent surfing, the more intelligently and critically we 
think and surf, the more agency we bring to our activities, the less manipulated we can be, the less data they're going to get from us. Social feeds will have less of a psychological effect. Our search results will be less able to steer us in a particular direction. So the brainwashing ability of the platforms goes down, and along with it, their ability to peddle that influence to their sponsors. You know, by refusing to deal with fake news and, and, and covering up what they surely already know about the deleterious effects of algorithms on civic society, Facebook and Google position themselves like the tobacco companies of the 1980s, which denied that nicotine did any damage, even though they already had those studies. Or the oil companies of the 1990s, which already had scientific evidence of global warming, yet paid millions of dollars to contradict that evidence with fake reports and fake PR. You know, what tobacco does to our lungs, algorithmic social media and search do to our civic capacity. They are eroding civil society, perhaps irreparably. Our digital companies are perpetrating an assault on our public health, knowingly and with the full capacity to change their impact. So let's make them acknowledge their part in what's happening and become part of the solution that's already within their ability. We're Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College and online at teamhuman.fm. Our guest today, my friend and inspiration, Al Norlada. So, Al what does decentralized revolution look like? You know, we're, we're contending with the totalizing, seemingly uh, uh, universal effect of neoliberalism on us, but it feels as if effective resistance is in all these teeny little pockets and all these little places. How do we, how do we, is there one thing going on? How are we connected? What is the, is it just some weird psychic way we're connected or is there, what's happening here? So I think that the impulse for progressive movements is to figure out what the post-capitalist blueprint is. And the issue with that is that's we're extrapolating the old model. You know, a Marx and Engels go into a room and crack that perfect manifesto. And in a globalized world, it's not going to look like that. And the, the sort of different expressions, the different decentralized expressions, I, I, I think what's happening is that they're learning from each other in new, quicker, more discursive, more dialectical way than they ever have before. You mean and, the way, the way say, uh, uh, Lumio in New Zealand would connect Podemos with Occupy. Right, exactly. Or, or even like, I, I look at like what the Zapatistas, to me the Zapatista movement in, in Mexico and the Chiapas region, you know, it's almost a million person farming community, alternative community, off the grid, their own currency, very deep, radical, political understanding of the world. And America treats it as if it's like, 40 women in, in you know, exactly. in one province somewhere. Exactly. Yeah. Or or they treat it like a terrorist state. And, right. you know, the CIA colluded with the Mexican government to essentially go to war with the Zapatistas um, because they decided that uh, they didn't want to be in a NAFTA state, you know. Right. And so I, I think what's happening is you look at the way the Zapatistas inspired this huge movement, El Alto 
in Bolivia, you know, the reanimated the autom- uh, the autonomista movements in in Europe, and and, and I think what's what's actually going to happen in terms of decentralized movement is people are realizing climate change is going to force us to live in small autonomous communities, whether we like it or not, and so they're thinking about well, how do we create resilient local community and local economy that's based on gift, that's based on cooperation and it's actually values that are binding these different groups and they're learning from each other but also understanding that their solutions are going to be highly contextual depending on the culture and the geography and the land and the historical precedence of that area etc etc but then i mean there's so many things i got to unpack from that but let mm. me start with the really simple one mm. environmental books today argue that we need cities, that cities and stacking people up and those big yeah. urban zones yeah. is the only way yeah. to deal with this population. Yeah. When you talk about lots of little decentralized yeah. cottage communities, yeah. I love it because it's an anarcho-syndicalist, but right. I worry because where'd all the people go then? Yeah, yeah. The, the, the people who argue that the urban solution is the only solution are, you know, by and large, university-educated Western urban theorists and their argument and you know even Zizek is sort of in that category right their argument is well the only way you can have this many people is sort of because is is essentially density right and what the city gives you is all sorts of uh, environmental efficiencies right like the termite mound right right like the termite mound now it's I'm not I'm not sure if you're into Daniel Quinn or no you know the author mm-hmm. of Ishmael he wrote this sort of best-selling novel many years back and then he wrote an amazing uh, nonfiction book called Beyond Civilization and I've had anthropologists look at this book and he's not an uh, anthropologist he's a, like a pop writer I think he actually worked in an encyclopedia company and then just became this polymath. And he writes this book, which I've had many cultural and evolutionary anthropologists tell me is quite an accurate picture of, of, of what happened. So he basically says, look, the, the downfall of humanity comes uh, when the Neolithic revolution happens. We invent farming and sedentary lifestyle and we disconnect from our host mother. Instead of trusting the bosom of going into the forest and hunting and gathering as we did for 99% of human history, we, we essentially create surplus. And once we had surplus, the first buildings that are created are granaries to store that surplus. As soon as you have a granary, you need a militia or some form of police to protect that. And then you need the inevitable hierarchy to ensure that the police aren't running the show. Right. And, uh, the story of Joseph from the Bible. Exactly. He goes in, build grain stores, seven years of feast, seven years of famine, then you're going to get a debt and the whole thing. Right. Yeah. So then, you know, fast forward 5,000 years later and you have the New York is the modern Babylon. You know, there's really... So, okay, well, what he also says is uh, we think that the population has increased because we could now feed all these people. But he says, no, no, no. We created a surplus which triggered a population growth. And when you're growing more food than you need, which is what we do, you actually are spiking human population to unnatural levels. We don't actually need to have this many people on the planet. Now, there's all these ethical concerns around this, right? How can we say one life is worth more than another? It's a a deeply philosophical territory. Right. And if you are going to wind down the population, you want to do it not by winnowing the living, but by making less. Right. Right. And that that, that would be the ideal way. So he says, well, how do you do that? Well, you control food supply. And the way you control food supply is you create strong, local, resilient communities that are self-sufficient in their food. Now, what's going to happen when um, we have 
a four-degree rise in temperature, what we're mitigating for right now, right, by 2050. It's equated to uh, a third, so 33% to roughly 40% of all biodiversity on this planet not being here anymore. So you remove one thing from an ecosystem, you can have collapse. Now, we're removing 40% of life from the ecosystem by 2050. There's no chance of, of, of survival in that situation. There, there's very little chance. You know, the dieback theories go from a billion people will leave this planet to six billion people will leave right. this planet. Right. You get down to a couple hundred million mutants right, but, living but, in zombie land. Or, or we create the infrastructure for transition now. We create these strong local communities and economies that are self-sufficient, that are growing their own food, that have energy that's off the grid, that we actually use the capital infrastructure that we, we have spent, you know, 5,000 years of modernity creating to, to, to sort of put in place a resilient system. And that doesn't mean that there won't be globalization. These, this idea that there will be little cottage country is not necessarily true. Like the Zapatistas and El Alto and other experiments have shown that, you know, you can have 500,000-person, million-person communities. They can actually interact in solidarity and empathy with other mutual aid networks and also have very strong independence. And... This is essentially anarchism, right? Right, but it's anarchism working not on a really national level, but more kind of returning to more of a city-state, yeah. a more natural-sized uh, uh, yeah. organism of humans. And and this is the thing, anarchism gets a bad rap because obviously, uh, you know, like the word... It means psych- like, go crazy! Yeah, and, and like, <laughs> like the word psychedelics, yeah. as soon as the, the power elites fear something, they sort of tarnish... It's it's meaning. Anarchy and anarchism aren't the same thing, right? Anarchism is a very cogent, coherent political philosophy that's about self-organization and self-creativity and the belief that human beings and communities know the best way to live and are the best arbiters of their own lives. And so... The, and, and I'm not with traditional anarchism in the sense I believe in no state. You know, I believe there's a role of the state and the corporations aren't going to go away and governments aren't necessarily going to go away. So the role of government is to localize power and protect people from the psychotic monopolies that grow in an unchecked system. You would have thunk. It's to keep land and labor involved with capital, you know, rather than... Uh, and, and that's the sole role of the government is to localize power. Right. And you can have strong... We, we don't have to use the word anarchist. We can say localist. We can have strong localism if we had a government that was functioning in that way. Right. I mean, that was why and I just wrote this piece arguing that at least one, one silver lining in Trumpism is that urge towards nationalism is kind of a first step towards localism. They like understand not, not that trade, international trade is bad, but can't we have a bounded economy in some right. way that's going to be circulatory rather than right. infinitely expansive. Although right. they still talk growth in all the, right. the nasty yeah, ways. Yeah, no, I, I, and I love that in your book, uh, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, the idea of a bounded economy. And so the, the issue with having America as that bounded economy in the nationalistic Trump sense is that, you know, America is a military state that's highly influenced by corporate power. There's a a guiding ideology that's, you know, what's good for GM is good for America, which now extends into the other 300 corporations like Monsanto and Microsoft and Coca-Cola. And so there's a very strong corporate colonial push in, in Trump nationalism. And it also means nationalism for us, while we essentially export and uh, shove U.S. policy into the faces of the oppressed poorer nations, and, and that's the only way you get U.S. nationalism, is the extraction of wealth from the global south that's happened since the beginning of colonialism. 
you know, the streets of New York and L.A. are paved with the blood of people from Latin America, the African continent, Asia. Your smartphone is paved with their blood. So if we were, let's say we do some of the groundwork now to create these new local base city-state anarcho-syndicalist mm, mm, cottage mm. Uh, uh, resilient communities. Then shit hits the fan. The, the climate goes nuts. The cities collapse. Doesn't everyone just storm these places? <laughs> Do we have to protect them well, from well, the everybody's? Well, well, there's also a step in between, right? Which is, I, I believe in, in resistance and renewal simultaneously. So I, I don't think that all we can do is create alternative currencies and cooperatives and alternative communities and think that we're going to be okay. Simultaneously, we have to remove the noose of capitalism from the neck of 99% of humanity. And we have to support the world's social movements that are, are fighting against their nation states and corporations and multilateral uh, organizations like the World Bank, the United Nations, the IMF, etc. And so... If we're doing our job well, if we have 20 years of beautiful uprising, uh, congealing of the world's social movements, massive resistances that essentially force our governments to start building that infrastructure themselves, which is possible, the, the, the pioneers that are doing the renewal work that are also building will then have a different task. They then have to be more radical and more interesting. So as the mainstream sort of values catch up with the values of those of us on the edge, then our job, as soon as the majority of people are agreeing with us, uh, we know we're doing something wrong, right? Which is what's what's interesting about Trump, right? What Trump has done is he's essentially uh, made centrists lefties. And now we're like, okay, so how do we actually be more useful as the, the progressive edge and expand our wings even more? You know, and be more radical in the best possible sense. Well, of the we've word. been liberated to do that yeah. now. We why pretend that we're anything else than exactly, exactly. And so I think I, I'm less worried about those ordinary citizens in 2050 storming our alternative communities because I actually think if we do our work, and and what I think we've come, you know, we've incarnated here for, you know, there will be a massive shift in balance of power over the next 50 years. Um, There'll be uh, governments that actually localize power and serve the interests of the majority, and we will start building the infrastructure even within the, their own Babylon city-states. And we will actually have the, the remit to, to push the edge on the alternative communities that are out there. Well, take someone like me now. So I'm writing books, doing my podcast, trying to teach. Is this really enough? I've got my... I get to live in the suburbs and I got my kid going to, you know, we're going to public school, but, you know, we're yeah. living well. Is that, or do we have to get our hands dirty? I mean, there's so many of us like me mm. at various levels of, of success. We're doing, I'm doing meme warfare. I mean, I'm the guy who came up with media virus. So yeah. I'm doing meme warfare yeah. and, and, and framing things and, and fighting the good fight. But at the end of the day, it, are, are people like me inhabiting or even you i mean inhabiting a, a, almost a, a i don't want to use this word but an ideological landscape are we are we we're changing minds but is that is, is that enough? enough you know yeah. so or put it this way there are listeners there's you know not a ton there's 10,000 people listening to this podcast and agreeing with what we're saying or 8,000 and say are agreeing yeah, with yeah. what we're saying and then what so you get back in your 
Toyota Prius mm. and drive to Facebook and do mm. your programming. I mean, what is it? What is it mm. we're to do? You find the others is what I always say. Find the others in your community. Yeah. Start small. What is our advice to them? You know, I can I can fight the fight. I can help change minds. Mm. Right. I can write books like Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus and and get some bankers right. to understand. Right. Oh, growth is killing us all. I get right. that, but. So and, and this is where, where my answer might be controversial, uh, especially among rationalists. I, I'm a big believer that the the revolution that's happening is not just going to be a political revolution. It's not just about the return to strong anarchist localist communities. It's also a spiritual revolution. It's a metaphysical revolution. We're finding new ways to see ourselves as a species and understand what our role is. And that's a fundamentally different premise. And so the question of like, well, what is enough takes on different contours, right? So what the new age would tell us is, well, you just go within, you know, you, you follow do, your bliss, follow yeah. your bliss, do that inner work. You can change the world if you don't change yourself. And changing yourself may have some fractal effect on reality itself. Totally. And, you know, look, I, I don't fully discount that view. Right. I right. come from a Sufi mystical tradition. You know, my ancestors would go in Arab town squares and pray for people. That was their whole existence. And they believe they changed the outcome of like millions of lives. You know, they th- believe they prevented wars from doing and that. And maybe work. they did. And maybe they did. And who's to say, right? right? And this whole idea of sacred activism that, you know, Charles Eisenstein and others talk about, I, I think is, is semi-interesting. And there's a role for that. But It's also semi-worrying. Yeah, it, it can be, especially because privilege is a blinding constraint. Right. So if the people who believe this ideology are the people that have the resources and the endowments and the privilege, well, that's not that useful of a strategy. You're, you're now essentially inoculating a huge portion of the rebel army and turning them into, you know, Eckhart Tolle reading you know, mediocrites, right? Like, what are they going to do? And so, so, and they might be more compassionate and a little bit kinder, but... Which is nice. Which is nice, but not that useful right. for a revolution, right? And then I look at the, the, the left, let's call them the traditional left, right? And the, what they've always done is they want the acceptance of their capitalist overlord on some level, on a sort of rationalistic argument. They want to be respected mm-hmm. because they were the oppressed labor, right? And, and then God died for the left, you know, even before Nietzsche declares it in the 1800s, right? And so, uh, and, and they're also, and I totally understand this, anarchist movement, the Marxist movement, they were in reaction to a sort of state religion that was psychotic, right? And so they threw away the sort of spiritual aspect of the struggle and they believe, well, what do I do in the material world? And that needs to be the answer to everything we do. And now I'd add another layer on this and I'd say, well, look, even if it's all for naught, right? Even if by 2050, the sea levels rise 20 meters and four or five degree rise in temperature and half the biodiversity dies and we trigger an ice age and the worst, you know, doomsday apocalypse imagination, which I don't believe. I fundamentally don't believe that. Um, I really believe that we are in the birth canal Mm -hmm. and we have a choice. We don't know what type of baby it's going to be. Is it going to be a cesarean? Is it going to be a stillborn? Is it going to be perfectly healthy? We don't know. The choice is completely ours. But regardless of what the outcome is, for me, there's a spiritual overlay. There's a karma 
you know, there's a dharma. There's like, this is my choice to play this role. And part of that role is to always question if I'm doing enough. But that is part of a broader spiritual practice. And part of that practice is also doing the inner work. I think the inner work is a pre-requirement for the revolution. But it's not the revolution itself. Sometimes the inner work feels selfish to me. Like, how dare I? You know, I, I got in all this trouble with the Jews back when, as a Jew, I was saying... Get out of the synagogue. Do social justice. You should only do as much synagogue as you need to get on the streets and help other people. And they're like, no, no, this is no, I, something I, I'm, too. Like, you know, there, there's, there's a great Vedic line that says your work should never exceed your practice. Mm. And I really believe that. That, you know, when I was... And it's the other way around as well. You know, we were talking about the World Bank campaign we ran at the Rules. And there was a moment when, when they wanted to negotiate with us where we brought these eight farmer groups to to talk to the World Bank and tell them how they were displaced from their land, how militias paid for by the World Bank and paramilitary burnt their villages down to create essentially Monsanto uh, agriculture. Their response, actually, the, the, the head of the doing business rankings was stoic, completely cold, and he said, it's just trendy to attack the World Bank right now. We are working in your best services. We're increasing GDP in your country. And he went on some neoliberal tirade that was completely emotionless and sociopathic. And and my initial instinct, uh, because I grew up as a, a street kid in Vancouver, was to throttle him. Like every bone in my body like wanted to reach over and... Uh, choke him out, right? And an amazing woman named Anuradha Mattel, who runs the Oakland Institute, highly empathic, sophisticated, brilliant activist, just looked at me and kind of put her hand on my leg and understood. And just in her look, I understood. She was like, you're not going to help the movement by doing that. And I went through a deep self-reflection on how could somebody who believes in nonviolence, who believes in the sort of the love of humanity is going to somehow save us, that believes in deep compassion, physically want to hurt somebody in that way. And the political triggered this deep spiritual existential crisis in, in myself. And I realized that the political work, what it does is it makes you confront the shadow. And then what the, and, and you need to confront the shadow. What, what the New Age movement wants to do is amputate the shadow. You know, oh, let's just focus on bliss. We're, we're creating binaries. We're not political. Politics creates duality. And it's like, no, ignoring politics creates duality. Yeah. I mean, that's why, you know, when I was, and I still do, throughout the Trump campaign, I watched Trump the human being. And, and I was completely open to him and feeling his vibe. I was trying to, you know, listen to him the way I would listen to uh, Leonard Cohen or right, something. Right, right, Really right. get it. And I understand the vibe. I understand what he wants as a human. I'm, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think that's a more useful place to it, be than totally. this, you know, la, 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 blanket rejection of totally. everything he's striving and, for. And, you know, th this is why, for me, the mystical and the anarchist impulse are the same impulse, right? Because they're actually about disintermediation from power. It's about gnosis. It's about direct experience. It's about conscious evolution. And it's about empathy. And when I, when I realized that there's a one percenter in all of us, there's a Donald Trump in all of us, you know, those things wouldn't be in our field unless they existed in us somewhere and somehow. Mm -hmm. And so I need to do that inner work to find that place where, you know, I, I am looking for the deal or I am a misogynist or I am a patriarch and I need to completely remove it from my body. And then I got to find that at the community level. 
and completely remove it from the, the morphogenetic field of my community. And then I also need to change the superstructure simultaneously. I need to change the rules that govern and reward that type of psychosis. And the revolution is happening at all three of those levels simultaneously. There is no duality. There is no inner work versus outer work. It's you know what Sri Aurobindo calls an integral yoga. And what he used to say is that we have to stop being theoreticians of evolution and become drivers of evolution. And that's how we do it. And we do it as a driver of evolution. You're not talking about genetic engineering. No, no, <laughs> no. I'm talking about taking our own destiny in, in our own hands and doing that work. You know, the old model, the, the, the sort of capitalist model really appeals to the individual in us. And so does a lot of uh, spiritual work, right? It's it's highly narcissistic. You it can't just be self-improvement to, and yeah, Maslow's exactly. self-actualization. Take care of yourself. You know, they'll give us that dumb analogy about in the airplane, you have to put your... Uh, um, life flotation Before device you on, your cell. on your cell. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you've, we've heard all... A great, a great example from industrial capitalism. Yeah, it's like, exactly. Because this machine was made so that you have to do it. That means life is like that. Yeah, exactly. And we've heard all those tropes. But, and they appeal to that. And, and there, there's uh, some truth in the individual level. And then at the community level, what's interesting is that's where the anarchists have always worked, but that's also where a lot of organized religion has worked. Congregation, the importance of the church. And then you look at the superstructural level, and this is really where the Marxists have worked and the neoliberals, right? They really understand that rules are generative. And the rules, we, if we create compound interest, we're going to have infinite growth. And hey, if you're a one percenter and you're making 93 cents on every dollar, that's a great rule. Mm-hmm. But we have to actually shift at all three of those levels, the individual level, the community level, and the superstructure level simultaneously. It's hard, though. Certainly on the individual level, it's harder than... It's easier for me to protest against my community or my bank or, right. than to... Right. to cleanse and purge myself of my moments of greed. Well, this is really the role of psychedelics. You know, this is how the role I see plant medicine play in this revolution. Like, there's a reason these plants are coming to every corner of the world. Ayahuasca is Incan technology, pre-Incan technology of the highest magnitude. And we would never turn down the use of the internet to send snail mail. You know, we'd never... uh, uh, That's why, you know, when someone says to me, well, I don't need ayahuasca, I meditate. And I'm like, you know, you have access to a plant that is the emissary of Gaia. And its sole purpose is to speed up the evolution of human consciousness and to upgrade your software so you can have Gaia 3.0 or whatever, the equivalent of Capitan OS X. And, and you're going to choose not to do that. And it actually, the plants make that inner work much easier. And we've always had a symbiotic relationship with plants. They are not other you know, and, and so for me, it's like I humble myself to these plants and to nature. And, and I ask to do that work because I know doing that work is going to make me a better activist. It's going to make me better at fighting the superstructure. It's going to make me a better community member. Oh, it's part of your practice. It's part of the practice. And where do you think they come from, these plants? Do you think, I mean, Terrence McKenna used to talk about, oh, there's mushroom spores or alien DNA. And what do you think's going, I mean, what do you think's going on here? Yeah, no, that's the ultimate metaphysical question. I mean, I get trouble. I have trouble. I have, I mean, talk about Jewish guilt or something. I have trouble even eating because you're taking, you're chewing the life out of some other form. Right. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah, no, it is hard. No, we're like, it took me a long time to want to be here. <laughs> you know, uh, I probably was 17 by the, when I first accepted that actually I'm going to play this game mm. in, in this incarnation. From a... Um, from a, a Sufi perspective, what we would say is 
God is an emergent phenomena. God is a metaphor for the universe. And God is everywhere, right? Allah is everywhere. So we are the universe unfolding on itself. And the universe wanted to feel this expression of what it is to be seven billion humans or the birds and the bees and the wind and et cetera, et cetera. And, and in some ways, our purpose is uh, to help guide that evolution. And so I don't really believe in the new age ideal that the universe is on path and everything's perfect. And there's a great Ram Das line where he says, well, the universe is perfect, including my desire to change it. And that, that's sort of more my perspective is more quantum physics perspective, which is we meet the universe halfway. There's no predestiny. You know, the, the old mystics were wrong about predestiny and providence. Mm-hmm. But there's also the, the Western rationalists were wrong. There's no pure agency. There's, there's a meeting of the universe halfway that comes from uh, intention and it comes from entanglement and it comes from context. And when we set our intention and we actually influence the ability of atoms to move in a certain way. And then our reaction, our observation, then changes the, the, the sort of multiverses of possibility. And the whole thing just happens at every moment simultaneously in this infinite progress or regress or however you want to say it. And there's just infinite zero points over and over and over. Do you see human beings as having a... I hate to use a word like this, but a special place in this in this whole order? Mm. You know, I think part of the hangover from Darwinism and neo-Darwinism is the belief that human beings are the pinnacle, the culmination of life. And I don't believe that. I think we're the newest and youngest members of the, the family of life. But I, I feel that human beings play a central role as stewards as a companion species. Yet, we somehow think we've evolved outside of the Argaian mother. You know, we think that uh, evolution for human beings is taking on some other trajectory, some other spin that is outside of life. And I don't believe, I, I think that's the most insane, I think that's actually a driver of a lot of our psychosis. And, you know, we were saying this earlier in our discussion here at CUNY with the Media Studies Group that when human beings went to the moon for the first time, Gaia saw herself differently than she ever could have because we are Gaia and we were reflecting back this vision from the moon. And human beings are going to play a central role somehow in bringing Gaian life outside of of the solar system. You know, our sun has a 10 billion year half-life. She's not going to be here forever. And the human beings that exist a billion years from now are going to be as different to us as we are from single-cell amoebas. We have no idea what they're going to be, which is why we have to preserve life and have to be pro-life, because whatever life exists at the, you know, whatever we want to call the end of days or the eschaton or that moment 10 billion years from now, they're going to be, we are going to be its progeny and vice versa. And so we know we're hardwired to defend life. All life is. And there's a reason for that. And I do believe in some kind of teleological directionality. And, you know, McKenna, to bring back McKenna, used to talk about this increase in complexity. And this is what complexity theory was about. Novelty is increasing, and it's increasing at an infinite rate. Even the speed of light is changing. Mm -hmm. You know, the boiling point of elements are changing. And so, of course, there's a trajectory. And he used to say, we're in parking orbit of the eschaton, (laughs) you know, or one of those great McKenna-isms. And the eschaton being the Christian study of the end of times, eschatology. 
And we do feel that. We're in parking orbit of some eschaton, of some major transcendental moment. It's, it's around us, and humans are playing a role. And I really believe we've reincarnated here on Gaia in 2017 in 3D for a reason. I don't pretend to know that reason. And, and I think, you know, the mystery of life is not a problem to be solved. It's a mystery to surrender to. And that's the role the plants play, and that's the role meditation plays, and that's the role any transcendental experience plays for me. It's funny. The, the theme I've been working on lately, maybe close with this, is uh, yeah, human beings are not the problem. You know, we're at least part of the solution. You know, and I feel Definitely. like the world that we're in, when you listen to the philosophies of Google or Wall Street mm. or Washington, mm. it's as if humans are the thing that has to be fixed. Right. You know, and that's a transposition of figure and ground. Of, right. Of, of sub- it's the, it's the, ground that has to be fixed right. it's the the system that we're living in that right. has to be fixed right. not you know uh, enough with the you know totally the, the pills so, and the social control and the, the mind shifting and the no, but, but this is the thing they don't understand right or they don't want to understand which is human beings are highly cont- contextual beings We're neither good nor bad. We're highly contextual. And for 99% of our history, we were hunter-gatherers that lived in small egalitarian tribes with very little hierarchy. We had social sanctions to punish leaders that took advantage of their power. And we roughly had the same calories. You know, we were working 10 hours a week. You know, this is all the Marshall Salins original affluent society understanding and the whole understanding of cultural anthropology, of evolutionary psychology, of behavioral economics is that we are actually altruistic, cooperative, egalitarian. And what's happened is that the dominant neoliberal, capitalist, Western rationalist discourse is about uh, human beings who fell from grace, who made these uh, uh, the mistakes of eating the apple that we, of course, blame on, on the female character in the story, that essentially... Our, our greedy, short-term is selfish, you know, the Hobbesian worldview, the Darwinian worldview. And as a result, we have to fix ourselves. And it's, it's the, 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 the sort of like great uh, Judeo-Christian Islamic remorse, you know, that's then institutionalized in universities where, uh, look who's running Google and who's running the State Department. They all went to the same schools, the same Ivy League schools. They're largely white. They're educated in the same way. They aspire to the same leather chairs. You know, what they think is beautiful, their aesthetic milieu is the same. And so, and we're, those are the people we're allowing to lead artificial intelligence and our relationship with technology, lead the nation states, lead the corporations. And they inherently believe that human beings are flawed and greedy and evil. And so, of course, the world is going to reflect what they believe because that intentionality is quantum. It is embedded in every atom. And, and they're the, the power brokers who are in control of the material world. And now we're telling a better story. We're telling new stories. We understand that we're hardwired for empathy, that we have mirror neurons, that we're highly cooperative, we're highly altruistic. And we're going to create new experiments that reflect those new values. And when we do, we're going to make their system obsolete. And we're also having a better time in that process. And they're going to look at us and say, well, they're having a way better time. They're happier doing that. Because even the one percenters aren't happy. Their right. kids are on Ritalin. They're on ADD. They're totally disconnected. You know, they're, they're, they're not happy. Like, no one could tell me Donald Trump is a happy man. And I think that is the hope for the revolution, that they themselves know it.
Thanks. Thanks, Al Norlada, for uh, incarnating in the same general time and space as me. So uh-huh. we get to do this again. Uh, I'm sure we've done it before, but uh, I don't remember. We were probably killed for it. Yeah. <laughs> the memory has been removed from our right. DNA. Or maybe we did it in the future. You know, that's the way I, go. That's the way I roll. So thanks so much. Uh, and everybody, you can find out more. Go to the uh, therules.org. Is a good a good uh, trailhead for uh, for a lot of this, and we'll put a bunch more links on the on the Team Human website. Thanks for joining Team Human. We'll be back in the basement media squat here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. And I'd like to thank our supporters, Meetup. You can start your own Team Human Meetup at meetup.com. Thanks also to Zago for designing our logo and helping us get started. And special thanks to Fugazi and Mike Watt for letting us use their songs in these shows. My name is Stephen Bartolome, and I'm on Team Human. And I'm Douglas Rushkoff. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm, where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. You can also support the show through our virtual coin slot with a one-time donation or a recurring one. If you want to hear us on the radio, let us know or connect us with your local NPR, community, or college station. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.